Now that we know what cultural responsive orientation and mobility or teaching is, how do we actually step into that version of ourselves? Now that we already know what independence looks like for our learners and they're all going to be different, what are some of the barriers? How do we actually achieve it? We're diving into all of that in this part two of our podcast and YouTube video. If you haven't already listened to part one, definitely go ahead and hop on back over there. It aired last week. That'll give you a good foundation of what we're even doing in this video and podcast episode. But if you're ready to dive into part two, come along because we're about to dive into some really great details. And I'm still curious, what happened with Uncle Steve? Welcome to A Step Forward, a podcast for ambitious VI specialists who are challenging the status quo. I'm Cassie Maloney, your new work bestie. With over 15 years of experience as an O&M specialist, author, professional development junkie, mom, and owner of Allied Independence, I have been through the ringer. And now I'm here to bring you a boost of inspiration, information, and our favorite innovation, as we trade feeling overwhelmed for overjoyed while we create a significant impact in the lives of our learners and still lead more balanced, fulfilling lives. So grab your favorite beverage because we're about to take a step forward. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. This presentation has got to have been one of my favorite of all time because we got to see in real life what actually happens when you have people who are independent and they have visual impairments. You might have seen Oseas start from his work and then jump into a car and then I wonder where is this man going to end up? We're watching him travel in real time. And so if you're watching the YouTube video, definitely pay attention to that. It's one of my favorite aspects. And also, you know, we can do as many run-throughs as we want, but in the moment, Technology is going to be technology, and it's really cool to see how Uncle Steve navigates technology. And not to be a spoiler, but he might make an appearance. In this episode, we get to dive into a little bit deeper of concepts. We want to know how our clients actually have their family or support network help them in their orientation and mobility training, or if they get to include them at all. We get to find out what barriers to accessing orientation and mobility are involved with that community and the cultural modifications that the orientation and mobility specialists made to create successful learning environments for their clients. If you're not already watching the YouTube video, head on over to youtube.com and find us at Allied Independence so that way you can see exactly what we're talking about. There are some pictures shown on the screen that you'll probably want to see. There's a cane that's made that's really cool. All of these things are really foundational moments and they will help make your experience better. If you are listening to this as a podcast episode, that is a-okay. Luckily, we audio describe everything for you. All right, let's get to the show. Okay, so next we are going to look at, or we want to know, how do you include your family or support networks in your O&M training? So say us, we're going to have you start. Well, I um, since my, my siblings grew up with me being blind, I think my mom played a, a major role. Um, to she learned from my instructors or my instructors when I was a child to to let my siblings um, know how important it was for me to to learn about my environment. So 
when we were younger, I, I used to ask them for a description of surroundings as if we were playing soccer in the soccer field or if I was riding a bike or and then later on crossing the street, they would tell me, okay, so we are in a corner of the street or the school where you are, because some of them went to school with me, different grades, they would describe things. So, so it's been always an open communication with them about my orientation. And whenever I need something, I ask them for the description of uh, my environment. So to answer your question in a few words, I having a, an open communication with them about orientation and mobility has helped me uh, get involved in my mobility, my orientation. Excellent. Cassie, while Jeremy is linking up with Steve, do you want to play M3? I can. Here's Mackenzie. All right, Mackenzie. Our next question is, how do you include your family or support network in your O&M training? Uh, they help me know if there's something big, tiny, or medium up front of me. If I don't use my cane, I can probably hurt myself, uh, trip, fall, or hurt my head. You're right. Is your family supportive of you using your cane? Yes. They like you using it? Yes. Do you use it when you get on the bus with mom too? Yes. Okay. I take it anywhere I need to go, like go to the store, go on the bus, go to my dental, or go to my doctor's. Good I job. take it anywhere I need to. So just to provide a little bit of context there, uh, Mackenzie takes the bus with her family. So the city bus or fixed route bus, um, public transportation to go to all of those different places she listed. So the dentist, doctor's appointments, to uh, I think to school, she, she takes public transportation. And so she has that family support where they remind her to use her cane or they're supportive of her using the cane when they're out and about in the community. Okay, so Jeremy, how about you? How do you include family supports and networks in your O&M training or when you're working with your clients? I think, as I say, it's so important because unlike uh, when I'm working in the city in Brisbane where I live or where I've worked in the cities before, you can enjoy uh, an opportunity to see people every fortnight or so. Whereas in, in these communities, you need somebody who's consistently with that person to say, hey, can you um, come along with us on the lesson? And very often that person's a, the driver as well or the carer or the support worker. And they can come out. And the beautiful thing about that is they're learning about the skills as well. And if they're learning the skills, there's a little bit of poetic license where they, they might you might come back and they've picked up a few habits. But usually they've learned some pretty good cane skills and they've learned the terrain. And I'm usually working in places where I know very little about the actual area and they know everything. So I'm, I'm always on the back foot on that, which is great. And I think a very important thing that when we get Steve on too is um, something something I say to people is, what, what would you like? And there was the, one of the first things Indigenous people says, we don't want a white cane. We want a cane with Indigenous colours on it. So it's glorious colours, the black, yellow, and the, the, the different colours up the length of the cane, and it, that gives them their pride. And so we've found an Australian company that's very happy to put those colours onto the long cane. That's something now I carry in my kit bag to say, hey, what do you think about this? And um, that's great, yeah. When they use those colours, do they use reflective tape for those colours? Or is it... Yeah, 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 still reflective. Probably an Australian thing. Some people put their football colours on them too. 
I think it's tricky if you put a very dark color on like purple or black because uh, sighted people come out of shops and don't really see the cane and that sort of thing. I think, and the same thing too with long canes is sometimes adapting the tips as well because we walk in some pretty rough terrains. So things like the decoded tips being quite good. Bundu bash has been a very popular tip, very good for winding your way through the goat tracks or the dirt tracks and that sort of thing. And uh, I was teaching a guy not long ago in Darwin who had a, a habit of pointing at things and pointing to people. So he'd have to sort of step back when he was pointing with his cane. <laughs> but it's a fascinating world. But I've learned a lot since I've just learned to listen and ask them actually what they want. And that's very different. I think Cassie's got a couple of pictures there of a, of a light plane coming into um, one of the one of the islands that I go to sometimes too. But great, do you mind sharing that, Cassie? Oh, okay. can you describe so we're, that? We're flying into um, Palm Island. For those of you who've been to Australia, it's off off the coast from Townsville. Townsville at present is actually having a direct connection with a cyclone as we speak. So everybody's battling down in um, in Townsville. Palm Island is about 20 minutes flight. You can't carry a lot of equipment. You can probably get away with one cane or a couple of canes and um, things like that because you can't carry much on these little planes. And the reason I even go to Palm Island was I made a connection with a local optometrist who also flies in, flies out to that particular island. And um, he works with the Indigenous Health. There's an Indigenous Health Clinic there, which have a really supportive, they have a group of GPs, they have have a optometrist, so to say, they have uh, nursing staff, they have um, people who midwives and that sort of thing. And they come in from this clinic. The clinic is all decked out as an indigenous clinic. It's got all the colors, people on the front desk who are indigenous. So you feel like you're a guest when you arrive there. And it's so nice to have that set up because it's it's a nice connection with the local people. And you're coming into their island and, and only they know the way around the island. So, yeah, it's very special. I think with these projects, you start off little, you find one person you can train, and then you say to them, if they're impressed with the service, they will make sure they tell others about it. So if the word doesn't get around, you know you've not done a very good job. Yeah, a lot of times we're our biggest PR people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they, they use language like, talk to this guy, he'll give you a stick. And go, that's ah. great, thanks very much. Thanks for it, thanks very much. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to go to the next question. This is a two-pronged question. What were the barriers to accessing O&M services in your community? And how would you improve O&M services to people within your culture? So, Oseus, I'd like to start with you. I'm going to I'll read that again. What were the barriers to accessing O&M services in your community? We can start with that. Well, in Guatemala, there's not too many certified O&M instructors. Very few that will be embarrassed. But I believe when I was a child, maybe there were three or four for the entire country. We're talking back then, 11 million people. So now it's 18 million people. It's a lot of people. There's definitely a lot of people who are between persons to not receive the services. Yes, I think that's the biggest barrier. And then the second part of that question is, how would you improve O&M services to people with your culture? Well, um, certifying more instructors, making workshops like this one to, to raise awareness of the need of um, this uh, orientation mobility, how important it is for, for people who are blind and visually impaired. Thank you so much for sharing. Jeremy, would you like to share about some of the barriers to accessing O&M services and maybe some of the indigenous communities in which you work? Yeah, I, I think one of the barriers we have is because we are called guide dogs and um, 
as an organization that's called Guide Dogs, a lot of people in those communities think, well, we don't need a dog. We need particular training. So I think the thing is not to go into the community on a cold cell, if you know what I mean. It's important to work with people who have already made inroads through health and support and are there on a more regular basis. They're very used to organizations coming into and providing a service and then due to funding or or lack of access and that sort of thing, they may not see those organizations again. And so they, they have a bit of a recall of a history of, of not having a consistent service. And so you've really got to be providing a service and coming back again. And I think somebody, one of the, one of the ladies said on your video that um, it's a very slow process because you're, they're used to a lot of organizations letting them down and not providing consistent services because that's just the nature of rural services, unfortunately. But we, I feel we're getting there slowly. There's an awful lot of people we don't see. And the only people we do get to see are the ones who put their hands up and say, yeah, I'll give this a go. And I, and I think once we get to see a few people in these smaller areas, word gets around pretty quick. And it's not one of those things you do with, with um, white Australians where you put an advert on the radio, hey, say, if you've got a low vision, we'll come and see you. Come to our local clinic. And it, yeah, it doesn't. It, you've got to really do the yard. You've got to go in there as someone who's um, listening to what they ask for. Be very supportive. Come back again. Work with their local people. Because if you just come in and work with them on their own and the local people don't know about you, then they won't have that understanding of the services you provide. And it's being flexible as well. And uh, it, it's so rewarding when you do finally get someone who actually picks up on the skills and goes, yep, I can use this. So there are barriers, but most of the barriers we have are probably ones we provide ourselves because we're working with that organizational constraints of how we do things. Sure. So one of the things I did hear you say is listening and learning first before we mm. start to kind of go in there. Um, what are some ways that you have listened and learned in order to make some inroads in some of those communities or to kind of break down some of those barriers? I think a big thing is handing over, being able to hand over your skills, not to own, not own the skills of being an O&M, saying, I will teach you one-to-one -one if anything is better than not providing any services at all. So if, uh, if an uncle or an auntie wants to teach somebody in their community how Jeremy taught somebody else, that's a really good start because they've started to understand the fact that it's how training can really help. And so I think it's, yeah, it's a case of not owning and not being too protective about how precise things are doing. Because a lot of these people are not crossing busy roads. They're not doing the Donna Salberg crossing five lanes. And they're on an island where they're trying to get around safely. There's a lot of trip hazards. And so we have to really modify the techniques. And the, the look they get when they walk through a community and people go, hey, what, what's he doing over there? And then you've got to stop and explain. And then if they're impressed enough, they'll then pass it on too. So... Yeah, I think the modifying your techniques, not being too clinical on your approach and working with the local medical people and clinics to find out where, where they've tripped up in the past, where they've made mistakes. So, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Cassie, can you please play A1? Sorry, before you do, this is Autumn Booth and she's an orientation and mobility specialist up in Juneau. Were there any barriers to accessing O&M services in your community? If so, can you please share some examples? How would you improve O&M services to people within your culture? Here in Southeastern Alaska, we have both the Tlingit and Haida cultures. And being a remote area, we have not had an O&M specialist for the students in person and full time in well over a decade. And with me coming in now, the students and the families have said to me they feel supported and they feel as though they can always ask questions 
because I am here all the time. And to help improve O&M services to people within the Clinket and Haida cultures, I would like to continue learning how I can offer my services to adults who are older, who may be in need of O&M services now that I am in person full-time here in Juneau. So I'm hearing a running theme through all of these folks, and I'm, I'm guessing you're all hearing it too, is that access is a really big barrier, especially in some of these more remote locations. At least in the U.S., I know we're always talking about the O&M shortage. I imagine that's going to be in all countries, that we just don't have the number of professionals to meet the needs of all of the people. And especially as, you know, we've got baby boomers and our uh, age-related vision loss, um, that population is going to continue to grow. And so depending on what your state or your province or your area looks like in terms of adult services, I mean, having a shortage and the supply is low, the demand is growing, access just becomes a real a real issue. And, and I'm not here to say that, but I guess it's that's the the tie that binds, right? Is that all every all of us, all of the clients, the comms are having issues with access. Just to add on to what Autumn said about it's not just access, it's also consistency. So for her to be there and be there full time, that consistency and that relationship building and that trust building, as many of you said, which is a really big part of that culturally responsive teaching, um, those are things that she's been able to foster by working with that community for a consistent length of time. And I'm going to try to paraphrase or take out the key highlights from what Angel says. Um, so Try to listen as carefully as you can, um, but I'll also try to, to, to capture or restate some of the things that she says. The first barrier is the environment. It's a very harsh environment in the winter, which is primarily when I work with my students. It's difficult, difficult at best. Like I said, many villages don't have roads. They have boardwalks. In the winter, when they're covered with snow, the snow is usually higher than the boardwalk and higher than the area, of course, that's under the boardwalk. And so it's very difficult to figure out where the edge is and safely move and navigate through feet of snow, sometimes three, four, five feet of snow in negative degree temperatures. So the environment it can be very harsh and very difficult, a, a huge barrier to accessing O&M services. Okay, so one of the first barriers that Angel talks about here is the environment, living in Alaska, and especially um, because Angel works in, she's based in Anchorage, Alaska, but they they focus on working with, and she'll describe this in her video when we talk about the next question, but she, she works out in the bush, in the remote areas, the rural areas of Alaska, which, I mean, Alaska is bigger than Texas, so if you if that gives you any idea of just the, the sheer size of Alaska. And so they only have a handful of, or they'll have few O&M specialists there. So it, they have very harsh winters uh, where they get a ton of snow. A lot of where she works is in villages that, that have boardwalks, but they don't have paved roads. And that's covered with snow. And sometimes the snow is so high that it's actually very difficult to feel where the edges of those boardwalks are. Also with negative temperatures, I mean, if it's really cold here in Illinois, I'm not taking learners out, but sometimes you just have to figure out how to adapt with that. And so communicating with the learner and with the family and community could be a solution for that. But just knowing that the environment as being a, a major barrier for instruction, at least in Angel's specific context. 
And the second um, barrier that I find are the belief systems of Native Alaskans. A lot of villages and the people there believe that if a student has no vision that they will be taken care of their entire lives. It's never thought that that student should live independently or be able to navigate his environment independently. Um, they just always know that they're going to be there. And so the belief system can be a huge barrier. Belief systems against canes. So those two things are probably the largest barriers that I face here in Alaska, working with students that have low vision or blindness and have O&M needs. So one of the first questions we asked the panel was, what does independence mean to you? And we asked that question because independence means something very different to each person. And I know that Angel mentioned it as one of the barriers. That's not necessarily wrong or incorrect. When we're talking about culturally responsive teaching practices, we want to meet people where they are. And so we're taught in our O&M programs a lot of the time that we want. We're trying to provide, do independent travel. We're trying to you know push for independent travel and independence. And that's the ultimate goal. And what we're learning through this presentation and through hearing these different perspectives is that what we're learning um, how to do is be responsive to the cultures, not just our own. And so, like I said, what Angel said about it being a barrier, that perspectives or belief systems about independence and about cane use can be perceived as a barrier. They're also a learning opportunity for us as orientation and mobili mobility specialists to listen and learn and, and dive deeper into that. Okay, so our next question that we had for the panel is what cultural modifications have you made to create more successful learning environment for your clients? So this is going to focus in a bit more on our O&M specialists. So Jeremy, if you'd like to start. So I think, think first of all, fitting in with the community, uh, the particular island I go to, Palm Island and places there are, the local community centers which have their own uniforms or polo shirts which have indigenous colors on them and things like that. So you're not walking in with um, big clinical looking shirts. I think that's important. Uh, as I mentioned before, the indigenous colored canes, and I saw a couple of people say, is that is that against the law? No, you, you can actually have canes which are not white. I'd say it suits these particular cultures better to have their own colors. It gives people a conversation piece. I think you've got to be very careful not to have too many colors that are too dark because other people won't see them, especially if you're crossing roads and that sort of thing. It's also not just going in as the front person, but going in with somebody they know. I think that's what I've learned. There might be someone they don't they, they know who does something completely different. It might be somebody who works in optometry or something and they'll he'll come along and he'll say, I brought Jeremy along today and he'd like to say hello to you. So not going in there and just trying to do it all on your own, fitting in with the community, sitting down under a tree, talking to people, don't bring them into an office to do the assessment. So you bring a clipboard and hope it doesn't, paper doesn't blow all over the place and uh, sit on the edge of a, a fence and chat to people and just remembering you're a guest in their particular community. I'm of no expert, but if we have the same discussion, hopefully in 10 years time, there'll be more progress. Someone also mentioned being careful about what specific words they use or how they phrase things, mm. and just, you know, being aware of, of the language that you're using. Cassie, can you please play A2? My client is a nine-year-old in our TCLL program here in Juneau, Alaska. TCLL stands for Clinket Culture, Language, and Literacy. And this program is part of our district, but it is separate. 
And being the orientation and mobility specialist who comes into that program, although it is housed in a district building, I do recognize that it is a separate program. And keeping that in mind, I got to know my student and their classmates and the teacher and the other teachers in that program before really stepping in and trying to help those teachers implement O&M skills even more in detail. And I have tried my best to learn a little bit more about their culture and about how they view persons with disabilities. And when I asked someone that question, one of the teachers, they said, we just view it as someone who needs a little bit more help. So we will step in and we help them or we ask them if they need help and then we help them. And so to better my knowledge of our Tlingit and Haida clans here in Southeastern Alaska, I applied for the cultural orientation course that is being offered this year. This is a brand new course. And although it is not visual impairment specific, it is clan specific so that I can better my knowledge base and continue to support my student, both in the classroom as well as outside the classroom and in their community. So hopefully all of you were able to hear what Autumn shared. In her community, they actually have um, a cultural orientation course that helps. It's it's brand new and it's something that she has available to her. And I recognize that this isn't available to everybody, but it offers her the opportunity to learn in-depth knowledge about the Clinket and the Haida communities with whom she works. And so that's that's kind of, a, I think, at least a rare opportunity. Does anyone else have? Cassie, if you could play Angel's video from the start until 310. Hi, my name is Angel Black and I am the teacher for visually impaired and the orientation and mobility specialist at the Special Education Service Agency in Anchorage, Alaska. We serve students in rural Alaska. Um, we go to all the places that are not on the road system in Alaska. So we get to go to Bush, Alaska, we get to go to the villages and serve all of the native children in those areas. I'm going to answer just a few questions. The first question is, what cultural modifications have I made to create a successful learning environment for my students? Um, every time I go out, there are cultural modifications that need to be made. The Alaskan Native culture, economy, and traditional way of life are intimately tied to living off the land gathering, hunting, and fishing for food. It's a subsistence lifestyle. So many of my students' families are worried that their children will not be able to help provide the food for families as they grow. So as an O&M specialist, one of the first things we do is um, figure out a way to make that happen for my students. One recent way was I had a student that was going on a muskox hunt, and so we had to figure out a way for him to go safely on this muskox hunt to be able to find the muskox and to be able to uh, shoot the muskox with a bow and arrow. So we've, we've worked a long, long time to make that happen, but ultimately he has had several successes and he's thrilled with the results as is his family. Another student I have, his parents did not want him to use a cane at all in the village. He was allowed to use it in school while he was walking around at school, but not in the village. This is a village that is built on a river, so the soil is very marshy. 
There are no roads at all in the village. There are only boardwalks. So it was very, very important that he learn to use a cane so he could safely navigate the village alone and independently. So at first we decorated his cane in using cultural artifacts that were important to him and his parents still didn't like it. So eventually I had a cane made for him that has a seal skin cover. This is real seal skin. This was made and created by a native woman in Northwest Alaska. We still have the red tip at the end and it was made in such a way that the cane can still be taken apart and folded. Okay, so just to kind of recap what Angel shared. So it's her CISA, it's Special Education uh, Service Agencies. And she worked, like I mentioned before, she works in rural Alaska in the villages. One of the cultural modifications she did was that she worked with the community in order to figure out a way so that her learner could be a part of muskox hunting because um, one of the concerns of the family was that this student would not be able to contribute um, with the hunting, the fishing, gathering, because they live off the land. That's what they do in that community. And so through communicating with them, she was able to work with the family and go out with them on a muskox hunt and figured out and worked with him on how to find and shoot a bow and arrow. Um, and then also the seal skin covered cane, which eventually became accepted by the family to be used in the community. Hello? Oh, there's Steve. There's Uncle Steve. I've, I've been here all the time. Oh. I've heard him, heard him, but apparently I wasn't on screen. Steve, it's going to be you. It's, it's, it's sorry, sorry, we lost show. you, Steve. Yeah. Can, no. can you do us a favor real quick and introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah Steve with us. Uh, I'm from Armadale, New South Wales in Australia. I'm an Indigenous uh, Australian. I've been a user of guide dog canes um, for uh, 30 years. And Jeremy was talking about the red, uh, red, black, and yellow cane. Yay. This is my, this is my one here. I was I was showing it, but I didn't realize I was, wasn't on the screen. And I've been a client for 30 years. And I, I do have some um, issues about support because, and I can relate to the people in Alaska as well. We're very isolated. We're very big and we don't have a lot of people around. I live in a large provincial city in, in uh, New South Wales and we don't have any baseball guide dogs there or Vision Australia. And we have to have um, irregular visits from people. I haven't had a um, mobility and orientation uh, lesson for over 12 months. Probably because we haven't got the staff to do it. And I'm, I've been using it for over 30 years now, so I'm pretty used to it anyway. If, if I require it, I'd probably have to wait for a while for the time. I certainly don't have the issues that uh, some people in Alaska have, you know, about the boardwalks and <laughs> or the boardwalks and all that sort of stuff with the snow up high. I'm very fortunate I am, and I, I really appreciate the services that guide dogs do offer and can offer. It has allowed me to um, to have that independence and mobility, and it allows me to have a, a good quality of life and to uh, to be able to uh, participate in the workforce and to be have a social life as well. And I've got a lot of support within family and within the community. I've always been grateful for the uh, the work with guide dogs, both guide dogs and Vision Australia, and it's good to learn what's going on in other countries as well, particularly up in up in Alaska. Uh, good day to Steve Bailey up there in Fairbanks. I'm alumni from UAF up in Fairbanks. I used to go there and I, I used to, I had my white cane when I first uh, started using it. Many times I lost it in the snow in the middle of winter. So I, I can relate to that. You know, that's all I've got to say. And I did listen to everything that was said. Um, and thank you very much for the opportunity. I don't know what's happened there about green was not on yeah. We'll have to have you back another day, Steve, but hopefully you agreed with things. I was trying to wing it there for you. If for a while. <laughs> now, listen, I, Jeremy, I, I heard everything you said and I agree. 
I Oof, agree with thank all you. stuff that was said. Mm, thank you. I don't know why I wasn't on screen or why I couldn't unmute. Well, we that. got you. We got you in the end, and you made a grand entrance. So that's fantastic. And um, I suppose one more, one, one more quick question is how how do we promote the services better? Sometimes people are a bit reluctant to take up the services. Is it something with someone I, like I, you I think, who's got a support? I think Indigenous organisations are pretty good to do that. Yeah. You know, there are statewide organisations. There are national ones in, in Australia, like in, in uh, Alaska. You have Aboriginal health services, Aboriginal medical yeah. services, Aboriginal community groups. I think we should uh, them to do it in our community. Yep. Um, you've got people there where people live. Uh, for example, there's a, you know half a dozen good organisations here in my town, which is a small town of about thirty thousand people, about the same as Fairbanks too. Yeah. Um, our town, Steve Valley, up in Fairbanks. The uh, use the organisations, use the existing organisations that are there, and some of the community um, active community people down mm. here as well. And promote it through, you know, the um, land council that is statewide. Promote your services through our services through there. That's definitely the way to do it rather than going in there on your own and wondering why people aren't coming to you. So thank well, you've you got, very you've much. Got people, you've got people that are there. Yeah, and as you said in the start there, Jeremy, uh, guide dogs, the name guide dogs puts people off. Mm. A lot of people don't want a dog. Mm. They don't want a dog, but if they know that they can offer pain and mobility training and orientation, they might be more acceptable to it. And I, I, in my own community, I speak to people with vision impairment and I show them the use of a cane and how to use it and what to do. You know, you encourage them to, to take up the service uh, from both both Vision Australia and um, GuideDog. And another way of doing it is go through the local disability network as well yep. and NDIS providers. Just a quick closure, you, what year did you do the Dakota Trail for as a fundraiser and how well, long did Dakota that take Trail, it? I did that with another blind person, both cane users, in 2012. The Dakota Trail is in New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, which is north of uh, Australia. Oh. And, uh, and another blind person traversed 96 kilometres. We wanted to do it uh, as blind people. Uh, we were the first two, first two blind men to, uh, to cover it, to honour soldiers that uh, supported Australia in, in the Second World War. But the project that we, we had was called Blind Courage. Okay, so we learned that Oseas got home to where he was going. And Uncle Steve was able to log in and get his mic and video working with the help of an assistant. Living with a visual impairment has its challenges. We know that. Living in a culture that is different from your teachers also has its barriers and its challenges. But that doesn't mean that they can't be overcome. Steve overcame the challenge of having to get his mic unmuted and get his video on. The young learner from Alaska, she overcame her own challenges. Angel Black comms in Alaska. She talked about the challenges that her learners have had to overcome. Autumn Booths, also a teacher in Alaska, has had to overcome her own challenges moving from the lower 48 up to the Alaskan Territory just recently. Jeremy, although native to Australia, has had to overcome his own challenges reaching Indigenous people. Maybe we all have challenges. Maybe if we take a step outside of our cultural norms and really work to see what could be more beneficial for our learners, despite what color cane they're using, maybe we'll all be better teachers. You know, some of the ways that I look at cultural responsiveness here in Texas are simple things. I've heard of teachers, actually Dr. Conchita Hernandez was saying that what she does is instead of using a phone to get in touch with the parents of the students that she works with, that she uses WhatsApp because they're more likely to be on WhatsApp. 
Or maybe you tell parents to show up 45 minutes earlier to a meeting, knowing that they're going to be about an hour late anyway. Or maybe it's that you teach your learners how to make a quesadilla and not a casserole. Little things like that that really impact the learner's life, that really bring their culture into the spotlight and allow them to shine. That's what's going to make the difference. During the presentation, we did somehow get on the topic of like a color of cane. And sometimes in the chat at the O&M Symposium, the chat can go one way and the presentation's going another. And we circled it back. I don't think the color of the cane matters. I think what matters is your intention and your impact. As an orientation and mobility specialist and as a VI specialist, we are consistently concerned about not just our intention, but our impact. And if we can make a way to have the impact of our lessons be even greater because we are intentionally creating a culturally responsive environment, it's going to be even more rich for our learners. So I'd love to hear from you. Leave me a comment, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, even on the blog. Let me know how you're stepping into being a more culturally responsive VI specialist. Are there any specific strategies that you use? What have your experiences been? I'd love to hear it all. Until next week, I hope that you can take this information to help you take a step forward.